Welcome to the Connected Commute podcast from Bolden Networks. Bolden Networks is unlocking the power of an interconnected future by bringing you insights from leaders in transport around the globe. Today, Chris Bichette from Bolden Networks is talking to Robert Montgomery, a storied UK bus executive with a career spanning decades. Their discussion centers around the importance of making buses a more attractive option to passengers, ranging from the aesthetics in a bus's design to improvements in frequency, reliability, and comfort. Okay, well, Robert, uh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule to uh, to talk with us today. Uh, it's good to be here. So uh... excellent. Um, so, uh, Robert, I, I've heard a lot of stories. Um, I understand you have a very storied career in uh, transit, particularly around buses. Maybe you can just give us uh, an intro and and uh, a little bit of your background and pique some interest from all those people looking for help on buses. Okay, how, how long have you got? Because uh, <laughs> I first walked through the, the door of a bus depot professionally in 1970, so I'm in my 54th year of uh, messing around with buses in various shapes and forms. Uh, so I've done all sorts of things in all sorts of places. Uh, I think for the last 40 years, I've held sort of MD-type positions in uh, bus operations in the public sector, the private sector, in the UK, in Ireland, and the Middle East, and I've also been involved in running buses in North America, Europe. Uh, so a whole variety of places and a whole variety of things. So uh, I'm quite happy to talk about any of that or any particular location or any particular decade. But uh, quite a lot going on in that period. Well, you span the globe. I'm, uh, we will at some point talk about the different the differences amongst the cultures. Oh the places you've been to and how that's uh, different in the bus industry. But I want to start it out just, let's throw the cat amongst the pigeons and kick it off. Why are buses so unsexy? Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I remember being in a bus manufacturers in Belfast in the 1990s with the chief executive of a major bus manufacturer. And it was about to buy about 40 buses for a major project. And we were looking at this bus he was trying to sell me, and I'm looking at it saying, do I like it? He said, what's wrong? Because it looks like the back end of a bus. He says, well, it is the back end of a bus. I said, well, that's the problem. A lot of bus, bus has a back end that doesn't look as if it's on a bus. So, um, trying to make buses sexy has been something I've been doing for a long time. Uh, you can do it. Uh, I mean, uh, my main characteristic in all of that time has been to get more people on buses. And doing that over the last, you know, almost from the late 50s, that was almost like a, a lost cause because the growth of car use uh, just decimated bus use. And that was, that was almost inevitable from, from the point when cars became affordable uh, to the vast majority of the population because they saw it as freedom. And it was freedom. You get your own car, go where you like, do what you like sit in any traffic jam you like to sit in, basically. But because uh, uh, car, cars work, the only problem with cars is the traffic. And what every car driver's got to work out is he's part of the traffic. So when you're trying to grow bus use in that environment, it is very, very difficult. And, and therefore, from about 90, late 50s, early 60s onwards, it was a straight downward spiral. And you were fighting an almost losing battle uh, and to try and win that back. And as I say, I've been involved in the bus industry from 1970, uh, started doing management type stuff in 74 and beyond. And the one thing I'm pleased about is I've been, I haven't left any organization I work for uh, without leaving it with more passengers than it had when I arrived. And that whole thing about generating growth is same in any, any business. The one thing that gives you a future is more customers. And getting growth in buses is what I've focused on for the last 40 years. Uh, and so far, I haven't left an organization where it wasn't carrying more people when I left them in RI. Now, in different decades at different points, there's things you can do to make buses attractive. Um, but the biggest battle in making buses attractive is the actual environment you operate. Uh, the buses themselves, you know, the 
haven't really changed. Well, they have changed those vehicles, but what's really impacted on the industry and caused it to decline is that swarm of cars everywhere. Uh, because the impact of a people choosing to use a car, and then when they do, they clutter the streets up. When they clutter the streets up, the buses get slower. When the buses get slower, they cost more to run and they carry less people. So you go into a very, very difficult financial situation where everything is stacked up against you. And when people say to me there's a problem with the buses, I usually look at it and say, actually, it's not the buses that are the problem, it's the environment they're trying to operate in, uh, battling their way through cars. So it is possible uh, to get more people on buses. I've done a variety of projects, a variety of places in the last 40 years where we've done that. But it tends to be the exception rather than the rule. You have to work really hard at it. Uh, you have to do a lot of different things, uh, but you can get growth. And that's the thing that keeps me hopeful, that uh, you can get growth. But you've got to be quite inventive. You've got to be quite determined, quite tough about it. Um, I mean, amongst the things that I've done to get growth was in the mid-80s, uh, I was involved in projects to convert traditional uh, bus routes in the UK from double-deck buses, moving very slowly, carrying high volumes of people, taking ages to load at stops, with van-converted 18-seat minibuses. And we were moving from bus every half hour to bus every five minutes. And amazingly, when you're on a minibus every five minutes, you carry an awful lot more people than you did on the, the, the previous double-deck version. Now, that worked for a period. Uh, that, in the 80s, led to growth. Um, it began to stutter a bit. You get some growth at that point, but you then get to the stage where you have to use bigger buses again. You're still stuck in traffic. Um, so a whole variety of things that you can do. Um, when I was in Dublin in the early 90s, we did an awful lot of work on improving the environment, getting proper priority on major corridors. Uh, and then developed core urban urban routes into the city without any traffic in the way. And again, we got growth. So there's a lot of things you can do, uh, but you do have to work very hard at it. It's, it's interesting what you just referenced about um, capacity and frequency. Smaller buses were more popular. And, and just intuitively, I have to think if I can go out and catch a bus every five minutes, that's appealing to me. But it seems the trend is the inverse. The buses are getting larger and larger. They're getting two decks uh, in places outside of England now, and in North America at least. And uh, they're going the different, the opposite direction. Is that a factor of the context, the busyness of the roads already? No, not really. I mean, I think the factor is that when you say that uh, the, the uh, minibuses were more popular, in, in reality, we had a dilemma in that period. The frequency was massively popular. We carried an awful lot more people. But the, the space that people had on the vehicle and the environment of the vehicle was less spacious, uh, not quite as comfortable as a, a standard bus. And we had that constant debate almost with, with customers as to, well, you want frequency? Oh, yes, we like the frequency. But can we have frequency with big bus systems? No, you can't because the, the equation just doesn't work. Uh, a, they don't move fast enough because they're too big. B, they're more... Um, expensive, and if you're running them very frequently, they're, they're half empty. So that's that's always been an issue. But at the end of the day, the most significant thing you can do is frequency. And the other, second most significant thing you can do is reliability. And if you can't operate every five minutes, you should at least turn up when people expect you to every 30 minutes. So frequency and reliability are important. Uh, frequency is hard unless you've got very high demand. And you'll only get very high demand if they get freedom of movement on the street. So uh, it's it's all conditioned by you know, the pitch you're playing on. Uh, if you give me a very difficult pitch to kick a ball on, it'll bounce all over the place. And bus operators in a lot of places around the world, particularly the UK, actually go out every morning into kind of hostile territory. Uh, with a lot of traffic about, a lot of incidents about, and not a lot of priority about. And therefore, you you have a battle simply to provide a service that's quick uh, and that's reliable. If you look at cities like Manchester, etc., and you look at the journey times today on some of the major routes, 
and you go and find a timetable from 1980 or 1975, you'll find it was much faster. And the reason it was much faster is there wasn't the same amount of traffic to battle. So you are in a in, in a very you're working from a very difficult position, and what you really need to do is change that environment. So is that is the environment what's going to hold buses down? Because to me, the hierarchy seems, in terms of sexiness, uh, air travel, notwithstanding the, the masses of cattle class uh, accommodations and and uh, the treatment of passengers these days, but air travel seems to me at the top of the echelon. Then rail, then buses. Is 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 it going to take clearing out the streets a little bit for the buses to travel to overtake rail? Well, I think it's fair to say that it's very rare that buses compete with air and very rarely compete with rail. So in terms of you know, certainly urban buses, they don't. And therefore, you aren't, the competition, if you're an urban bus, is the car. And the hierarchy that has to change is this assumption, and we're not helped by the UK Prime Minister commenting a few days ago, that he doesn't want to get in the way of people using the car whatever they want to use it. Um, that really isn't helped. And the hierarchy needs to change towards pedestrians first, cyclists second, buses third, cars beyond that. And if you give all of your city centre road space uh, freely to cars, then you can forget about any mass transit. Uh, you, you simply cannot deliver it. Um, the bus suffers because if you build a light rail system or a, or a railway, you have to give it its own track. You have to give it its own priority. Uh, buses, it's just an, it's another vehicle on rubber wheels. Never can take its tongue in the queue. So, so that hierarchy issue is one that's important. That if you want to have a clean, livable city with a pleasant environment, you don't want traffic jams, cars parked all over the place, pollution from cars, most of them single occupancy. Uh, you really have to reverse the way in which the city works to, to the point where it's pedestrian friendly, it's cycle friendly, and it's bus friendly. And if you look at the European cities in particular that have moved that way, they are far more pleasant places to be. And that's actually the key to making buses work. You, if, you, if you do those things, all of a sudden that magically changes the environment. Uh, if you're in a situation where every year the traffic gets heavier, the bus speeds get slower, then the cost of running them goes up, the number of people who want to use them goes, goes down, and you're just in a death spiral. If you turn it the other way around, you're in, you're in a whole virtuous cycle uh, and things get better. Um, that's the battle that bus operators these days need to win, is they need to win that priority and the access to space. And we need to change the attitude where if you've got a car, you can do what you like. You can go wherever you want. You've got freedom. Everybody else, you can sit in the queue behind me. That's That's got to change. And... And it will change because at the end of the day, environmentally, it's no longer sustainable. So in the long run, uh, there's a good prognosis for buses in the long run, uh, that once we actually face up to the air quality issues, the climate change issues, the environmental issues, then we really do need to change how we move around in cities. And buses will be one of the beneficiaries of that. Going off on a little tangent here, but in my hometown, in the early 1980s, they had to decide the way forward for transit. And uh, all the options were on the table, uh, light rail, subway, and they decided to build an infrastructure exclusively for buses. They had the, the transit way, they called it. And it was a separate set of roads that uh, went under and around the regular traffic. And it was a highly efficient system that won all kinds of awards uh, in the industry, but I think it was characterized by the people of the town as they just complained a little bit less. And um, since then, we've rolled out uh, a light rail service in the past, over the past 10 years, uh, that went live about three years ago and has been utterly miserable. And uh, in, in direct comparison, the buses were much more efficient and practical, but nobody's happy. So it, it's, I guess, I guess what I'm pointing to is just a perception that makes it difficult. And I think part of that maybe is cultural. You, you take the bus when you 
can't afford a car is the perception, particularly in North America. So um, I, I don't think it's the same way in most European places. How do we overcome that culture? How does the bus get some glory? Well, I think you're coming back to your very initial comment about how do you make buses sexy? Because it's not simply a matter of getting priority. Uh, priority is essential because that allows you to be fast and frequent and, uh, and, and, and efficient. But you also need to make the product attractive to people as well. Um, I've seen some very successful bus systems where the buses aren't attractive because the, the alternatives are even less attractive. When the alternatives are attractive, then you've got to think about what this product looks like. And I've always argued that buses are two things. One, they are a kind of essential utility. You need them for mobility. Uh, but they're also a consumer product. And you've really got to think about them as a consumer product. It's got to look attractive, feel attractive. People have got to feel good about using them. And... Um, that, that involves being careful about the little things, which is why I was up in this debate about the back end of a bus in Belfast uh, 30 years ago, uh, because was, I was deathly serious about it. I mean, he, I think he actually thought I was looking, and I said, I'm not, you know. And we actually didn't buy his buses, and he was horrified. Uh, he thought, we would, you know, well, why would we buy them? So, well, we're not, you know. And we, we did actually find a manufacturer who gave us a better looking back, and we bought those. Uh, and that was always a kind of statement that was saying, look, we're about to do a major project. We've got massive priority on the streets. We've got all the other things going the way we want them to go. We need the buses' interiors, their exteriors, everything about them to look good. And I don't want the buses looking like the back end of a bus thing. So that's part of the, that's part of the solution. You've really got to think about the detail of what you're providing and how you're providing it. There's a lot of fundamental basics, like being frequent, being on time. Having having priority, but you've also got to look at the cosmetics as well. I, I I listen to what you say, and it sounds like a very brave person in the public service, because it's unlike the the general thinking we have in our public service over here, in that everything is designed by committee, and and such a a bold decision not to choose a bus just to, because of the way it looks from the back end would never pass it through the 25 people who need to give their approval. <laughs> well, it just said there was working for a state-owned company at the time. So uh, well, we, we, were, we were very clear. We'd, we spent about two or three years building the environment that would allow us to get the priority and the, the stuff we were going to do. And that this was the, the cosmetic bit at the end, that we needed it all to look right. Um, needed the delivery to look right, needed the marketing to be good. Uh, we went to huge efforts to get it right, and therefore we didn't want the bus to look like every other bus. It had to, it had to be a special-looking bus. Um, was it spectacularly special? Not really, but it looked better than the average, and that, that was all part of the pack. I, I noticed you laughed when I said that because you obviously recognize the pattern of what I'm talking about. Um, the, the and, and I'm going to ask you the impossible question now. How do you get the public servants are, say, uh, I'm trying to be euphemistic here and polite, but call it unmotivated, typically. Stereotypically is, is the understanding from the public. How do you get them to step up and, and make those decisions and stick their head out a little, stick their neck out a little bit and, and try to make these decisions for the betterment of transit? Well, those kind of environments are there to be challenged. Um, I mean, I, I've always been you know, of the kind of mindset that you decide what you need to do and then you make it happen. And in order to make it happen, you do what you have to do to make it happen. So I probably get a reputation of being a little bit blunt occasionally, uh, uh, a little bit um, of a troublemaker, rebel, you call it what you like. But uh, um, I've always taken the view that there's a point at which you really, you need to do a combination of a kind of charm offensive uh, a logic is offensive. You explain the logic of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And sometimes at the end of the day, you have to be quite blunt. And that particular exercise, for example, was the culmination of two and a bit years of me going around the city, free PowerPoint with a carousel of 35 millimeter slides, 
doing the kind of same presentation again and again and again to all sorts of audiences. Um, and that was what designed to try and get the police on side, the, the traffic authority on side, to get all of the different stakeholders actually accepting that there was value in doing something major on, on buses. And we got to a point where we had a kind of coalition of people who were giving us what we wanted. And the day in which we launched that with the, the sexy backs on the buses, uh, we came down priority streets that actually had motorcycle policemen all the way down the street. Uh, on the first couple of days, we had full support from the police. They were, they were one motorbike shifting people from parking their cars at bus stops and all the rest of it. And it worked like a dream. And I said to them at the time, can you do this every day? I said, well, no, we'll do it for a few days. We can't do it every day. But, it, but it, I, that, again, was a statement because it made, it made the point. And uh, what we'd done was gradually build up a coalition around the fact that you couldn't carry on uh, allowing every car to come down every street to. Um, I mean, interestingly, one of the slides in that in that carousel was of the the Irish president uh, travelling across Dublin in a full scale motorcade with motorbike out motorcycle outriders the whole lot on our side, and it was presented to people on the basis, well, that's public transport, you know, it's it's got priority. Uh, she's not driving, you know, she's she's been driven by somebody else, and that that worked well. Um, I obviously can't make any judgment of of your demeanor, we haven't never worked together. You, you described it the way you did, but uh, it reminds me of something I've been saying for a while now that um, sometimes you need a big jerk in charge. Uh, you know, at the start of the pandemic, there were all kinds of rules and uh, you could tell which ones were, were BS when they all got written away at the stroke of a pen. And sometimes a lot of legacy carries on because no one is brave enough to make those changes. And sometimes you need a jerk in charge to say, that doesn't make any sense. I don't care that it's been there for 80 years. We have to change. Well, that's, that's an approach I've always had. Actually, usually when I go into any job, the first thing is go back to basics of what we're trying to do. And at that point, what we were doing yesterday doesn't matter anymore. It's a case of what we're going to do tomorrow. And how do you make it work? And... That that's an approach that I've found works, um, but you've 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 got to put a bit of effort into how you turn people around and get everybody to understand that you know, things can be different and this is how it'll be different. And, and once you start to get people seeing that and on side with that, you can deliver stuff. This podcast is brought to you by Bolden Networks, unlocking the power of an interconnected future. We're delivering the advanced shared network infrastructures needed for a smart, inclusive, and sustainable future. From interconnected transit to venues, enterprises to smart cities, we're creating new possibilities in the way people live, work, and play. To find out more, visit boldin.com. You've uh, traveled and worked the world. Is it is it time to come to Canada and straighten things out here? Well, my sister keeps telling me I should come to Canada, and as you know, I've got a son there as well, so... Um, maybe that's why I'll stay in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not true. That's not, that's not true. That's not the reason, but never mind. So, well, no, no, I'm happy enough here. Yeah, we could use the help. Right so, now. so, so then, who is doing it right? In all your travels and places you visited and worked around the world, who's who's nailed it? You will find, you know, you'll find countries that are doing it right. You'll find cities that are doing it right. And I think the biggest part of the doing it right, and, the, and I know I sound like a broken record, are the ones who actually deal with car issue first. Uh, you cannot you cannot have a, a freely moving city if you simply allow cars to do what the hell they want. And, and therefore, you've got to remove the cars from the centre. You've got to... And nothing wrong with cars. You know, I drive myself, but I'm very careful where, where I drive and how I drive on the grounds that it's the indiscriminate use of single occupancy cars in cities in the morning and afternoon peak and all the rest of it. That's what causes the problem. And and therefore, cars are, bef- are definitely a good thing used appropriately. Uh, but given complete freedom to access cities. So when there's only one city in the UK that has a congestion chart, um, uh, well, uh, a lot of other cities say they'd like to be like London, uh, but they actually aren't brave enough to actually do something 
to make it difficult to, to drive a car in, in a city centre in the morning and afternoon peak, uh, causing congestion. So, you know, there are, there, are, there are cities that get it right all over the place, um, and there are cities that get it wrong. I mean, probably the most congested cities, um, and so the UK cities are very congested. Uh, a lot of Asian cities are very congested, but a lot of main, mainland European ones aren't. And uh, once you've done it, once you've actually made that change, people don't actually want to go back. They're actually quite happy with it. But uh, it's how you break the barrier. And certainly in the UK environment, there's almost everybody's scared of cars. Well, we can't touch them. You know, you can't stop people doing that. You can't. Why not? You know, why, why shouldn't you? Because objectively, the impact of high volumes of single occupancy cars in cities is negative, even for the people driving them. Uh, you know, they actually get pretty far pretty fast. So you you've really got to break that cycle, and that's that's the key to making a difference. There's all sorts of debate in the UK about governance. Should the, should the local authority run the buses? Should the private sector run the buses? doesn't actually make any difference. What does make a difference is can you run buses freely? Can they, can they be run efficiently? Can you actually deliver a good service to people? And you can't do that if you're battling your way through congestion. I feel, I feel typically there's, just as a general observer, there's two ways that this gets solved. And one is... Um, simply with, uh, by achieving a critical mass, um, a mass of, of transit, London, New York, uh, you know, Japan, I feel like I'd never want to own a car and, and the transit yeah. is adequately, has adequately covered the area that it's much more efficient yeah. and I don't mind taking transit. Uh, yeah. then there's, like you say, the cities that do it right. The cities that plan it for me, Amsterdam. Okay is the pinnacle for places I've been mm -hmm. to where it doesn't have, I think, I think the population is 800,000 in Amsterdam. It doesn't have a complete, uh, you know, over dense population, but they've prioritized bicycles, pedestrians, and, uh, bicycles over pedestrians, I'd say, and, uh, public transit. And yep. I don't think I'd ever want to own a car in Amsterdam either. Well, you can, you can create that environment. And the, the thing you need to do at the point when you do create it is once you create the freedom of movement for buses, you've got to increase the frequency and increase the supply, uh, which is which is much easier to do in that situation. It's still it's still an investment. It doesn't happen miraculously overnight. But uh, you know, people will say, well, I'd, I'd use buses more if they were more frequent. Well, they'd be more frequent if we could actually move the damn things. You know, you're, you're in, in a situation where... Uh, bus speeds are so slow that even without buying any more buses or employing any more staff, if you if you freed the streets up, you you could almost double the frequency, uh, and that's without actually spending any money. That you then start to invest in an even higher frequency, and you you free when you freed the roads, then you will start carrying more people, and then you get a virtuous circle that you can reinvest and reinvest. Uh, you mentioned earlier that. Um... There's there's more that needs to be addressed other than just making room for the buses. Uh, you you touched on the passenger experience. What are some of the successful changes you've made to passenger experience in the past, and and what others would you like to head towards? So, there are a combination of yeah, there are a combination of things you can do. Um, I mean, certainly making even even making the exterior of the bus look more stylish and more attractive then makes people feel happier to, to ride on it. It's not, it's not so old-fashioned. It looks quite stylish. If you're promoting it in a kind of consumer-led way as well, that makes it more acceptable uh, and make, makes it more, more likely that people will use it. There's a lot you can do to bus interiors. I mean, buses, traditional buses have rattles and uh, they, they don't travel very well. The suspension can be poor. But when you combine the current sort of move towards zero emission electrification, which makes them quieter and smoother, uh, you provide better quality seating, better quality floors, better quality lighting, uh, better connectivity. You, you start providing all of those things, then you, you can transform the, the environment. And it then becomes something that people are happy to do. You know, they've got, they've got some space, they've got, they've got 
you've got a pleasant environment to travel in. And you have to work at that, uh, you know, in terms of you know, creating that and then keeping it that way. Uh, takes work and takes effort, but it, it pays rewards if you, if you can do it. And, and of course, price is also a factor, especially dramatic price changes. You, you had a, you had a significant hand in Megabus, which had some dramatic pricing. Yeah, we, it, price, price is a factor. I mean, price is a factor. In a sense, it's price is a factor. But whether it's price that actually deters people from using buses is very debatable. Um, you know, there are there are some locations where bus fares are higher than they should be. But I can think of all sorts of cities where the bus fares are actually quite competitive. They're, uh, in fact, in the days when I was working at Stagecoach, we did an annual survey every February of how much it costs to commute in every in every city we serve, uh, by car and by bus, and we always found that the bus was cheaper. Now, admittedly, that's commuting. You, know, you can use the car at the weekend to go to the seaside and various things of that sort. But if you use your car for those kind of things, and then you use the bus for the kind of commuting stuff in in, in cities, it is still cheaper to, to to use the bus than use the car. So it's not actually price. Uh, you know, it's it is a factor. I mean, you mentioned megabus. The megabus was no urban buses. That was intercity express stuff. I guess my point was. If I can spend one pound to get between two cities, that becomes part of the lore. That I, I'm I'm bragging about that. Yes and no. I mean, I think we generated very high volumes of demand through through Megabus. Where okay, we had we had fares of a pound, and you could get a one pound fare on any any journey if you booked out in advance. Um, I think the average fare on Megabus was was about eight or nine pounds between any two cities, which is still much cheaper than a train. Uh, and and therefore that that appealed to a certain section of the market effectively, uh, and that actually gave people mobility who didn't who wouldn't otherwise have had mobility. Um, I used to do exciting things that sit on a train, reading printouts of all the inter- all the social media comments made by people about Megabus, and it did all focus almost entirely on value. And what it didn't do it wasn't really focusing on value, but it was focusing on what I can now do that I couldn't have done if Megabus didn't exist. You know, people get into somebody's birthday party that they didn't think they could get to, to the discovery they could get, they could do it for four quid. Uh, and people go into a concert somewhere that they didn't know they could get to, to the discovery they could do it for four quid. So that kind of thing uh, worked. And the same, the same applies to a degree on urban buses. I mean, you can, you, you can price promote urban buses as well in, in certain circumstances. Uh, and there's always a danger the more um, obsessed we get with uh, kind of equity in transit in big cities that we end up charging people more than we need to uh, because on very busy corridors you can actually discount the price and carry more people uh, you can discount the price and carry more people in very quiet corridors because the demand just isn't there and therefore you should never forget the price part of the product equation uh, on buses and there's a danger in some cities that they do, uh, and they, they don't actually see price as a lever. Uh, it's a lever downwards and, uh, to create greater demand in the right places. The, uh, the one pound uh, fare, I think, was borrowed from the airline industry. Are, are, are there lessons we should be learning from airlines or rail or and applying to buses? The whole concept was borrowed from the airline industry, effectively. Um, I mean, the background to that is I remember when I was working first, um, picking up an award for something in, in Glasgow. I can't remember what it was for now. But it was in the very early, it was in the early, mid-90s. And when internet was growing, but not universal. And the previous awards on that night were for various internet promotions. And I remember seeing very publicly if only I could find some way of running buses on the internet, um, but we haven't quite worked that out yet. And then about three years later, working for Stagecoach, uh, I, w- I was sat with Brian Souter, the, the chairman, and he was saying, we need to do something on this internet. <laughs> what could we do? And we then more or less just copied the airline model of uh, you know, the, the yield management and everything else that went with it. But all of that was dependent on technology. Uh, you 
I've, I've done stuff with Intercity Expresses in Devon 10 years earlier. Again, with quite heavily discounted prices. It worked well, but the marketing of it was difficult and the retailing of it was difficult. Uh, because if you're going from somewhere to somewhere that's 100 miles away, you can't easily set up a sales operation 100 miles away. And, and therefore, you always had one endy to travel. Wherever you happened to be, uh, you picked up a lot of people from there, but all you did was bring them back. You didn't necessarily pick up as many people at the destination because you didn't know the sales facility. And the internet changed that. You had the ability to simply be able to retail everywhere and anywhere uh, on, on those kind of prices uh, completely changed it. Even the way we launched it completely changed because normally you'd, you'd introduce one route and then a few weeks later you'd do another and then another. We actually worked out the only way to do it in the kind of internet age was launched a whole lot on one day. One single big marketing campaign because everybody could simply get on, onto a website and make a booking. So, but it was all, um, it was a, effectively a clone of the low fares airline model including using less popular bus stations and things of that sort. But you didn't have to go to the big bus station in the centre. You could go somewhere else. And that was cheaper. Sometimes it was more convenient for customers. And you, you, we did all the same kind of things, and it worked. And it's still working. I, I want to come back to the technology and connectivity you alluded to first. But um, if it was all um, borrowed from the airline industry, has anybody tried business class bus service <laughs> yes and is there a reason we don't hear about it now yes <laughs> well no no that's not, that's not true but uh i mean what i said for a long time about business class bus service is that as you start to move into having bigger seats more space catering uh all of those things are add-ons um you actually you've actually got a train you because know, you're moving into a market which trains will do far better than, than um, now, having said that, and generally taking the view that what you should do with express coaches is they should be safe, they should be clean, they should be quick, they should be cheap. Uh, but that's those are the factors that matter. You can put a lot of bells and whistles on them; it wouldn't necessarily make a big difference. Um, but having said that, we did launch a gold version of Megabus in Scotland, uh, which had better quality vehicles, more legroom, uh, catering, and uh, your better Wi-Fi and all, all of those things, and also made sure they were much more direct. And that was more popular. And we, we, we did get demand from that, and we thought, okay, maybe we have actually done this and made it work. But interestingly, I was looking at what's happened post-pandemic in those routes in Scotland. And they have gone, they are still direct, they're still faster, they've still got slightly better buses, but actually a lot of the bells and whistles have removed at you know, post-pandemic. And it's not made much difference to the results. So there's a, a, certainly an indication that on the coach front, if you're trying to sell to a clientele that wants something that little bit more luxurious, they'll take a train. Um, what we did have some success with was overnight sleepers and there is there's a big there's a certainly potential a lot more potential for running overnight coaches uh whether they are about sleeping facilities or not um traveling overnight by coach particularly into big capital cities is a very high demand market and a lot of that simply is how we do it in the uk if you need to be in london in the morning for it for any kind of you know, to go to an embassy for a visa or to do something at nine, ten o'clock. You do that by train and you'll get no change out of hundred pounds, regardless of where you go from. You do that by coach and maybe leave at three or four in the morning and from Manchester and arrive there about eight o'clock. Uh, you'll do that from a ten quid. So that is that's a different market altogether. But uh, there are there are a whole variety of different markets, both for coaches and for buses, if you if you're imaginative enough. And you can, so once you get the volumes, once you get the ability and the freedom to move, there's an awful lot of things you can do. But if you're spending all your time starting to cure cars, then your innovation is kind of constrained. There are some routes just along what you're talking about where I might prefer the bus because 
by plane it might be three hours or I've been on some red eyes that leave at inconvenient times and arrive way too late. But if I could sleep somewhere for six or eight hours, that would appeal to me. And especially for less and, you know, with security and privacy, that would be more appealing to me. Well, we did, we did run successful sleepers from Glasgow to London. Uh, we got a lot of demand and a lot of interest and they worked and there was a market that they served. Trying to get it to a stage where it was entirely profitable was a bit of a struggle. Uh, I, th I think it can still be done, but there are, there are issues about how you design the vehicles and the nature of the routes and everything else. But, uh, what we did establish was there was a market. You know, there were people who were prepared to pay that bit more uh, to be able to ha have some kind of bed where they could actually stretch out and go to sleep. Um, how you how you make that fit in a bus configuration is tricky. Uh, we did it with eighteen meter articulated buses, where we could give people a seat and a bed. Uh, the problem with that is the capacity wasn't big enough to really make any money. We then tried using double deck buses with the seats converted to a bed, and the logistics of that were quite difficult. So um, the actual conversion itself wasn't as simple as it would be on a plane. Uh, so that that one didn't quite work either, but uh, there's still a market in there. I think there's somebody in the US doing something uh, on overnight sleepers right now. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to look that up. That might be appealing to me. Um, you you earlier mentioned how the internet changed things, particularly for ticket sales. Um, what about the technology on the buses? How how is how has technology changed what happens? To us? The obvious would be passenger Wi-Fi. But uh, just connecting the bus itself must have changed things in the industry. Yes. Yeah, there's been a huge, huge change in the last 10 years uh, on connectivity in, in the context of being able to do real-time information for buses. Uh, predictive real-time information at stops uh, in the early 2000s was, was there, but it, it was nearly always faulty. You know, it involved a lot of hardware, uh, a lot of bespoke equipment and the like. Uh, by the time you got to the end of the 2000s and you were using internet connections and you could link it to the ticket machine and everything else, then that was kind of transformative. That you could then track a bus. Uh, for a long, long time, that was something you, you just couldn't do. Um, so dependent on the internet for real to do that, you can now track a bus, you can transmit data to and from a ticket machine. You can submit mess messaging. Uh, you can do live CCTV from a bus into a control room. All of those things suddenly came in a burst in the in the late two thousands, as as did Wi Fi. Um, I mean, Wi Fi on buses is let's say interesting because as an operator. Uh, you can be spending quite a bit of money providing Wi-Fi to customers. And you always think, well, is this actually you're valued by customers? And you think, oh, who, who would want to use Wi-Fi on a bus when quite often you've got data on your phone anyway and you've got 4G and 5G? Uh, trains are different because the way trains operate, 4G and 5G might very well be outside, but in the train it's not, not working. Uh, slower moving buses in cities should still have good 4G and 5G. And I think what we discovered was that when you started looking at the demand for it and what the use it was having, there's a market there. For some reason, uh, I, I think the, re the reason has to do with the fact that significant numbers of bus passengers don't really want to have uh, a big data package on the phone and they'll quite happy, happily settle for uh, using Wi-Fi on the bus. And I think there are people who simply even if they have got a big data package on the phone, to actually take the view of, well, why should they use mine when I can use somebody else's? And uh, they probably end the month with loads of data unused, but they'll use bus operators, retailers, everybody else's about Um So uh, I tend to take the view these days that not providing Wi-Fi on a bus is a mistake uh, because it's one of those... We, we talked earlier about what do you need to do to buses to make them attractive. Well, you need to throw the kitchen sink at it. And... You know, Wi-Fi is one of those things that if you have Wi-Fi, even if there's somebody who doesn't use Wi-Fi, exactly. knowing there's Wi-Fi there, a perception. Uh, makes yeah. it a little bit more attractive. 
Yes. Yeah. There's it is perception. Uh, yeah, and there there are well, that that's our industry, so I know of the number of hidden benefits that come from that as well. Uh what about um the you you'd mentioned some of the things that were were you connected the buses more. Can you dive a little deeper into that? How does that change the operation of the buses or are we into the preventative maintenance on the fly or the real-time alerts or a security, you know, panic button for the driver to hit. Is there any revolution that's come from that? There's a whole variety of things that you can do. I mean, certainly on the security front, um, it certainly enhances security, uh, especially on vehicles where you can do live CCTV transmission to control rooms. If, if an incident occurs that the driver can switch on, uh, you immediate a video to the control room, even if he can't use the radio or say anything, the very fact that you can see exactly what's happening uh, makes a difference. Even the fact that you can make announcements on the bus from the control room and not the driver, uh, sometimes can be more effective uh, than, than the driver trying to deal with the situation. So those those, those things matter. Uh, the ability, not so much to do... Uh, you know, immediate sort of maintenance based on a message from the bus, but the ability of using technology to monitor the condition of the bus and to predict when it when it requires maintenance and the like is also transformative in, in, in the kind of medium term. And the sheer volume of data being collected by both real-time and ticket machines does allow you to schedule buses much more accurately. And one of the things, I mean, apart from frequency, the most important thing is reliability. As soon as you move away from a continuous flow of buses every few minutes, then you do need to be much more precise about scheduling. Now, there's a two-edged sword to this. The reason you have to be precise is because you're dealing with traffic and traffic ebbs and flows. If we can get rid of the traffic, which is what I'd really like to do, then it becomes less important because you're dealing with a road that only you and buses are using. But for as long as we're sharing roads, new roads with significant amounts of traffic, then that traffic varies by the day, and by the season. And if you can use the data gathered by the ticket machine and the uh, the real time, uh, you can then produce much more accurate predictions of journey time, produce much more accurate base timetables. Because the way to deliver bus, bus frequencies reliably is to be able to get the schedule right in the first place. Um, you see operators using a lot and using control rooms and supervisors on the street and all sorts of things to regulate buses. Actually, by that point, it's too late. You really need to predict it in advance and design the schedule to deal with the circumstances of any particular day. And therefore, you minimize the need for intervention from control rooms and from uh, street supervisors. That's the way to deliver reliably. If you are living on, on, on the edge, basically, with a control room and the supervisor uh, intervening to try and fix things is usually too late. You, 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 you might ameliorate a problem, but you won't remove it. Whereas if you, if you use the previous six months' data to tell you what's going to happen on a Friday in November, then you would schedule in anticipation of the kind of things that will happen, and you will be more reliable. Are you so seeing that's a, all a lot of applications of machine learning or artificial intelligence, as they say? Yeah, there are. There are. Um, and that's growing, um, but and it's particularly important in the big cities. So if you take, you know, London, Singapore, New York, uh, the big cities with intense traffic and intense frequencies on buses, you can make a huge difference to uh, both the quality of operation and also the cost of delivering it. And you can actually deliver a more reliable service cheaper, and all of that contributes toward making buses buses better. Wrap up question: What's where 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 are buses going in the future? What what stands out to you? What gives you hope? What are the the things on the horizon you want to reach out and and implement to make your services better for your customers? I think I, I would say that ironically, we're probably in one of the toughest periods for operating buses I've ever known right now. Uh, but if I think about okay, roll it forward ten years. Uh, even five, 10 years, 15 years. I think the whole issue of climate change, air quality, the environment means we have to do something. And where I, where I see the future 
is that I actually think that buses in 10 years' time will be carried, 10, 15 years' time, will be carrying more people than they ever have. Uh, I think there's a bigger future than a past. Um, that it's possible for buses to get back to where they were in the 1950s and beyond if we do the right things in, in cities in terms of the environment. A big chunk of that is in the hands of the operators because it's a bit like an apple falling from a tree. You can look at that and think, this is inevitable. It will happen. But it will only happen the way you want to happen if you take proactive action as well. And therefore, what you've actually got to do is feed in, in a very careful way, feed in higher frequency and better buses and better services, coincident with uh, the change in rulership. You can't simply wait until people stop using their cars because they can't use them because of air quality restrictions. And then wait a couple of months and then start increasing the frequency of buses because that just ain't going to work. So there's, a, there's two things that need to happen in parallel. Is that there needs to be action in managing cities and there needs to be action in operators investing in higher frequency better buses and everything else. And that's the kind of thing that we need to be planning now. Uh, and when you look at that in 10 years' time, one of the other big challenges, and I think this is a worldwide, not a worldwide challenge, it's a Western world challenge. We need to do something about how we can produce enough drivers to drive those buses. Because that will make a step change in the volume of drivers that we need. And in all the time I've been involved in the bus industry, we've always been living on the edge in terms of driver numbers. So you, we need to be thinking about that as well. How do we deal with that? Because they won't be autonomous. There's no way anybody's going to send a big bus out with 70, 80 people on it, on its own, to deal with whatever's out there. Uh, you will have to have a responsible individual with that bus, whether it's called a driver or whatever you want to call him. So that's not a solution. Yeah, so that's not going to help. Uh, so there is an issue there in terms of how we manage to run a much bigger industry. Well, thank you very much for your time, Robert. And I think we'll wrap up there. And I uh, really appreciate your, your, you sharing your expertise with us in uh, the bus industry. And uh, it was great talking to you today. Good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Connected Commute podcast from Bolton Networks. Follow or subscribe on your platform of choice to stay connected and keep up to date with the latest innovations at Bolton.com.